0: Good morning, church. So, I got this spinner thing this morning, all right? And my screen said, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30, 30, you know, and I did the spinner and it landed on 45 minutes, so (laughs) buckle up, all right? No, I'm kidding, of course, all right. No, no, no. (laughs) Today, we're going to continue our ongoing upside-down study in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter number 8 for today, so if you would go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 8. Of course, last week we, uh, we finished up chapter in, in chapter 7, and there Stephen, as we saw, became the first Christian martyr we know of for his faith in Jesus Christ. But from Stephen's example, boy, we learned a lot about gospel conversations last week and some important tools for how to navigate conversations toward the gospel. If you missed that message, of course, you can visit firsthearst.com, our website, and uh, um, just click on the messages link. You can, in fact, catch up on any of our recent messages that perhaps you've missed. Uh, you can do that through the Church Center app as well, if that's more comfortable for you. But today, uh, we're going to start with what is this kind of brief transitional passage in Acts. It tr- it's a transition in the overall narrative of what's going on in the early church. You see, up to this point, the explosive growth of the early church, it was localized in Jerusalem. As we've seen, those early believers, man, they were boldly sharing their faith with others in Jerusalem. They were having gospel conversations every person, every day in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The number of believers there in Jerusalem, it was increasing exponentially. 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, we saw in chapter 2. Over in chapter 4, we learn that after another message, it says the number of, of men was 5,000 who had trusted Christ. And, and then in chapter 6, it tells us that the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. By conservative estimates, there were likely tens of thousands of believers by now. Say it with me in Jerusalem. But you see, back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told his followers, he said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so as we move into chapter 8 today, we're going to see those believers finally move beyond Jerusalem into phase two of Jesus' marching orders. They're going to begin to carry the transforming gospel message to Judea and Samaria as Jesus had instructed. Now, (coughs) excuse me, we have this map to show you to kind of uh, get your bearings on that. But as you'll see, uh, um, Jerusalem, I've kind of circled for you in the center. And that outlined in yellow area around it, that is all of Judea. And then Samaria is in the red to the north. So they're going to disperse from Jerusalem to take the gospel into these other places as well. What we find here in chapter number 8, it inaugurates a new stage, a new phase of the early church's ministry and the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria. The impetus for this move, it was the stoning of Stephen. Look with me in chapter 8, beginning in verse number 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's, at the end of chapter 7. And there arose on that day, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed at home base there in Jerusalem. It says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. There's that persecution. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the chief priests, the elders in Jerusalem, they had made their point with Stephen and they got away with it. And so now they've kind of instituted a standing protocol of persecution against Jesus' followers. And that's what drove the early believers finally to spread out from Jerusalem. Now they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And what we see here is that persecution ignited the gospel's spread. Persecution ignited the gospel's spread. You see those committed followers of Christ? They didn't just head out into the countryside and hide, uh, keeping their faith secretly tucked away. No, they dispersed into Judea and Samaria to be witnesses for Christ. We'll see that later in the text. Just like Jesus instructed in Acts 1.8, they were carrying the gospel with them. But persecution is what it took to ignite that spread of the gospel. You know, according to research that's been compiled by the Esther Project, beginning with Stephen, Acts chapter 7, more than 70 million Christians have been martyred down through history. 70 million. And it wasn't isolated to ancient times and Roman emperors. In fact, more than half of those 70 million were killed in the 20th century alone. So far in this 21st century, that is just since the year 2000, somewhere between 100,000 to 160,000 Christians have been martyred each year. Numbers are rough, of course, but that's somewhere between 2.2 to 3.5 million martyrs for their faith in Jesus Christ, not 2,000 years ago but over the last 22 years. According to Open Doors' 2023 World Watch List, today Christians in more than 60 countries around the world face persecution from their governments or from their neighbors because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And to help us visualize what that looks like, Uh, I want you to see this. This is their most current map where it highlights the 50 countries where persecution is the fiercest. It's a little difficult to see on the sides, but uh, easier perhaps to see here in the center. Um, What you'll notice right away is that almost all of those countries where persecution is the fiercest are in Africa and Asia. Now, we're going to leave that map up. But I want to also tell you about some statistics from LifeWay research. These were published about a year ago, February of 22. And at that time, LifeWay research noted that worldwide, Christianity continues to grow in spite of persecution. Now, we don't see that growth, nor do we see the persecution, really, here in America. But globally, Christianity is increasing, far outpacing most other religions. In fact, it was estimated that by mid-2022, 2.56 billion people would claim Christianity. They would identify as Christians. Can you guess the places where Christianity is growing the fastest? Africa and Asia those places where the persecution of Christians is most intense, the places where the enemy is most feverishly trying to snuff out the good news of hope in in Jesus Christ, the places where it's hardest to be a follower of Christ That's where the gospel is spreading the most. That's where lives by the multitudes are being transformed. It's where believers are taking courage, and in the power of the Spirit of God, they're having gospel conversations to share the hope of salvation in Jesus. It's in those places where gospel conversations are, in fact, illegal or even deadly. So what's keeping us from having gospel conversations? You see, it's been true since right here in Acts chapter 8 that persecution of believers has ignited the gospel's spread. Now, we don't celebrate that believers in Jesus around the world are facing that persecution in the dark, difficult places of this globe, but but we do celebrate the overcoming power of the Spirit of God and His ministry, shining the light of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ into those dark places. That we celebrate. Amen? Well, with that in our as a background, that transition, we return to our text now. And we're going to see for this morning an example of what that gospel ministry looked like as it spread out into, into Judea and Samaria in the face of persecution We look back to our text now in chapter 8 and verse number 4. It says, Now those who were scattered because of persecution, they went about preaching the word. You see, they weren't hiding their faith. They were preaching the word. Philip he was one of the deacons, by the way, who was selected in chapter 6. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city." I'm going to tell you, it sounds a lot like Philip's ministry was a lot like Jesus' ministry, right? Well, what's happening? Verses 1 through 3 gave us this kind of macro view of how the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem out into Judea and Samaria because of persecution. These verses, 4 through 8 now, zoom in on Philip's ministry there in a city of Samaria as he was preaching the Word of God. And guys, that was just a really big deal in itself that that this was happening in Samaria. There was a huge hurdle for Jewish believers to overcome because the Jews and Samaritans, man, to put it lightly, they just flat hated each other. There was this long-standing bitter racial tension there. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans because the Samaritans, they were descendants of Jews who had married Gentiles. So there was an interracial heritage for these Samaritans. The Jews very much disapproved of that. Oh, but now the gospel was breaking down that wall of division. It helped those Jewish believers to recognize that they're actually no better than the Samaritans or anyone else. The gospel helped them to see that all people are loved by God. The gospel makes it clear that all of us, regardless of our heritage or our skin tone or our economic standing or whatever comparative uh, issue you want to look at, all of us are guilty sinners in desperate need of God's grace. We're all on the same plane. See, those early believers, they came to understand that every person including the Samaritans. Every person needs the gospel. So as we come now to the main narrative of this section, we're going to zoom in even further on a particular interaction that happened as part of Philip's ministry there in Samaria. We look back to the text now in verse 9, and we'll read a longer section this time. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now he had all these guys fooled. Simon, the magician, as he's sometimes called, he had all these people fooled into thinking he was really somebody, whether it was just sleight of hand or tricks that he had learned, or if he was perhaps even enabled by um, evil uh, demonic powers, we don't know. But he had all these people thinking he was really somebody special, like he really had magic powers. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, those Samaritans, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Yeah, he was amazed because the authentic, powerful work of the Spirit of God, this was something beyond what Philip had, or excuse me, what Simon had ever even dabbled in as a, quote, magician. Continue in verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, these two apostles. They came down to check things out. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he'd not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they, John and Peter, laid their hands on them, the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the Apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Simon was still drunk on the esteem that all the people of Samaria, uh, of his city, had shown him. He, was, uh, um, uh, uh, he loved how they revered him for his power. And when he witnessed the apostles do this laying on the hands, he figured, hmm, maybe I can manipulate this for my own advantage. He wanted to ride this wave of popularity, of excitement in the Holy Spirit of God. He wanted to gain even greater notoriety for himself. He thought he could perhaps monetize this trick that he observed in Peter and John. He was viewing the power of the Holy Spirit like any other magic trick, just like he would pay traveling practitioners to buy their secrets, their sleight of hand secrets. He thought he could pay the apostles to teach him how to do this magic trick, uh, this laying on of hands and imparting the Holy Spirit to people. He still thought this was all a magic show. Verse number 20, but Peter Peter said to him, and Peter gets kind of harsh. He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Sounds like Peter's telling him he didn't quite get this thing, this matter of the gospel. Repent, therefore, he said, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, Peter and John did, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now verse 13 tells us that Simon, the, the magician, he believed and was baptized but then Peter comes at him with this uh, uh, rebuke, and it sounds a whole lot like he's telling him, buddy, you're not even really saved. You didn't get it. In fact, commentators and scholars differ about whether or not he was actually saved. I'm going to tell you, I believe, I believe what the text reveals here, and particularly basing it on Peter's rebuke of him in verses 20 to 23. I believe the text shows us that, in fact, Simon was not truly saved. And that's kind of confusing because earlier in the passage, it said he believed and and was baptized. Well, we're going to kind of unwrap that a little bit and and walk through some elements of this passage. And we're going to find along the way that Simon shows us three things that simply don't save. Three things that don't save. The first is belief doesn't save. In verse 13, Simon himself believed. Hang with me, okay? Because I know that just doesn't sound right. Especially in a Baptist church to say, wait, wait, wait. Believing won't save you? Wait, what? Now we're using that term here, believe, because that's the term in the text. But before you go calling the personnel committee together to fire me this afternoon, all right, let me explain what we mean. You'll notice in your outline that out next to that blank for belief, there's parentheses to give some extra clarification for what we mean by that. And what goes in those parentheses is intellectual assent. Mere intellectual assent to some facts about Jesus, that doesn't save. In other words, simply believing Jesus was real, a real historical figure, intellectual assent to that fact, that is way different than believing in the name of Jesus. See, Simon believed something, but it wasn't saving faith. We're not told exactly what he believed. Maybe he believed just that Jesus was real. He he really lived. Perhaps he even believed the reports that surely had made their way to Samaria about all the incredible miracles that Jesus had performed. He surely believed even that Jesus died on a Roman cross. I mean, that's just a matter of historical record. Maybe he even believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe. Whatever Simon believed about Jesus, he did not believe that his eternal salvation was completely dependent upon Jesus. He didn't have faith that he could be saved only by grace because of what Christ has done. He had some belief, but it wasn't saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, friend, you can believe all the historical facts that the Bible reveals to us about Jesus, but if you don't believe that he's the Savior... If you don't believe that he died to pay the penalty for your sins, if you don't believe, in fact, that he is the only way to be forgiven and reconciled to God, then that's not saving faith. A second thing we find also in verse 13 is that baptism doesn't save. It says there that Simon was baptized along with all these other Samaritans He was so mesmerized by the signs and the miracles that accompanied Philip's uh, uh, ministry of preaching there that he just kind of went along with the crowd. Everybody else was doing it, and so he did it too. He was baptized along with them, even though he didn't truly believe in the gospel. But guys, just like intellectual ascent, I'm going to tell you, baptism will not save you. Now, that act of being immersed in the water over in the baptistry, um, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's an important act of obedience after a person has been saved. This public declaration that Jesus is your Lord and you're following him. But I'm going to tell you, there is nothing holy about that water over there. And going under the water, it does not impart any spiritual life or grace to you. Baptism is symbolic, but it's not salvific, which is kind of a theology term to say it doesn't make you saved. When I was 12, almost 13 years old, I knew God was stirring in my heart for something. I wasn't sure what it was. So I responded one Sunday night. That's back when we had Sunday night church. Some of y'all remember that, all right? Sunday night during the invitation, I went forward. I talked to the pastor. And I said, I think I need to be baptized. And not long after that, I was baptized. Except I didn't quite really understand the gospel yet. I thought baptism was this spiritual act that, that that would address this kind of emptiness and stirring that I was feeling. And I, I guess I thought maybe that would make me save, that spiritual act. But several months later, as so the Lord was still stirring in my heart, I finally recognized what I needed was not some spiritual act. I needed the Lord's salvation. And so with saving faith, I repented of my sins and trusted Jesus as my Savior. And then I was baptized again, this time properly as a symbolic act of obedience as a believer. You see, baptism, it won't save you. And and by the way, neither will communion, which we'll observe later in the service. These are both important, beautiful ordinances of the church but they don't confer or impart grace or salvation to anyone. Rather, both are symbolic. They they, they represent the gospel. Baptism, it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it doesn't save you. Those communion elements, as we'll be reminded later, later, they represent the body and the blood of Jesus, what he willingly sacrificed on our behalf to make atonement for our sin, They represent his body and blood. They remind us of his sacrifice. But those elements, they don't grant us salvation. Just like baptism, communion doesn't make you saved. One final thing we find in the text, in verses 19 and 20, we see behavior doesn't save. Behavior doesn't save. Stay with me. Simon, as we saw, he tried to purchase the gift of God with money. And of course, Peter sharply rebuked him. He pointed out his misunderstanding of the gospel, his lost condition. You're in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. But I'm going to tell you a whole lot like Simon. Many, many people today are trying to purchase their salvation. They think they can buy the gift of God, not with money, but with good behavior. People try to earn their way into heaven. They think I have to be good enough for God to accept me. And they picture like the scales of justice, you know, in God's hand. And like my good deeds have to outweigh the bad things that I've done. And if in the end they, the, the good outweighs it, well, then God will use that scale to determine that I get eternal life. Well, that thinking's very logical. I get it. Problem is, it's just 100% opposite of the gospel. You see, salvation, eternal life, it is God's free gift to us. It's not handed out based on whether or not you've been good enough to earn it. Because let me tell you, we cannot earn it. Now, we have this insatiable hunger for justice, right? We want every, everybody should get what they deserve, good or bad. But guys, we can never be good enough to deserve God's salvation, Rather, the gospel, it's all about God's mercy toward us. Oh, rest assured, his justice has been satisfied when he poured out upon his son his wrath against our sin. Jesus' suffering and death was God's justice against our sin. But as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, for by grace, that undeserved, unearned, free gift of God, by grace you have been saved through faith that is saving faith. And this is not your own doing. You can't do anything to earn it. It is the gift of God. He gives it freely. It's not a result of works, the things you do, so that no one may boast. You see, behavior just doesn't save. All right, so, well, then what is saving faith? I mean, we've said it's it's, it's neither belief, that is just mere intellectual assent to some facts— It's not baptism doesn't save, neither does behavior save. So what is saving faith? Well, as we alluded to before, it's not just believing that Jesus is real. It's believing that Jesus is enough. Saving faith is recognizing your own sin and understanding you can't do anything to save yourself from that sin. It's understanding that God took it all in hand. He took it upon himself to rescue, to redeem us from the curse of sin. Saving faith is trusting that Jesus, God himself, in the flesh, suffered and died to pay your sin's penalty And that payment was enough. It's believing that the sacrifice of Jesus was all-sufficient, that it was worthy. Then he rose from the grave to live forever as our Savior and our reigning King. Saving faith, let me put it quite simply. It's believing that God will forgive you and save you from your sins only because of what Jesus has done. Now, you don't have to be able to articulate all those things that I just rattled off, all right? But you do have to trust that God will save you from sin only because of Jesus. So what are you trusting in today? Is yours saving faith? And in asking that question, in fact, in in walking through this whole sermon, the point is not to cast any doubt on your salvation or or your relationship with Jesus Christ or, or your assurance that you're saved. But it is important to know that you're not trusting in mere intellectual assent to the reality that Jesus was alive on earth a long time ago. It's important to know that you're not trusting in some religious action like baptism or communion or or, or serving others or going on a mission trip. It's important to know that you're not trusting in your own deeds, your own good behavior to outweigh the bad things you've done as if God will accept you if you're just good enough. No, it's important. It's critically important to know that you're trusting nothing other than the sacrifice of Jesus that paid your sins penalty, for only that is saving faith. If you're not sure that you've been truly trusting in the Savior, man, let's talk about it today. You can come in just a few moments as we respond to the Word of God. You can come and settle in, in your own spirit. Before you even leave this place, you can know for certain you've been saved by God's grace. You have a relationship with Jesus, and your eternal home is in heaven. You can visit with one of our ministers, one of our prayer partners, as we respond in faith to the truth of God's Word in just a moment. Friend, I want you to know God loves you. Jesus died to save you, and you can trust Him You can be forgiven and receive eternal life today. So we invite you to come. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for making it clear to us that we cannot save ourselves. Oh, how we need you. God, you know our, our, our intention this morning is not to cause any saints of God to doubt. But it is our intention together with the Spirit of God to bring conviction to any who's trusting in themselves, in their own activities, or in simple intellectual assent, as if that's enough. God, help us. That those maybe watching online or sitting in the room with us this morning who do not yet know you as Savior, they've not truly trusted you today, call them unto yourself. We pray you do a work of redemption, save souls, and be glorified as now we respond in faith. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.